0: We know you have lots of questions.
1: If you think that you've developed symptoms.
0: Should I avoid large public gatherings?
1: Whether schools should be closed.
2: Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast COVID-19,
1: Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. This is one of our weekly updates. Our guest today is Dr. Tim Harita, who is a repeat guest on this podcast. He has been a practicing family physician in Southern California for 23 years. He graduated with honors from Dartmouth Medical School in 1997. He has been a residency program faculty member and program director and continues to enjoy teaching medical students and residents and is an assistant clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Currently, Dr. Harita practices with the Southern California Permanente Medical Group and in his community with the Westminster Free Clinic. His publications include several textbooks and a peer-reviewed article in the journal American Family Physician. He is a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society, and in 2018 was awarded Fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Tim, thank you for coming back on the podcast. We've had great feedback about how you explain complex topics. So I'm hoping today we can talk about virus mutations and specifically about COVID-19. Sound good? Sounds good. Thanks for having me back, Ted. Of course. So, Tim, several headlines in the past few weeks have noted a uh, mutant, more contagious strain that has emerged from the original coronavirus. Before we get into that and into the studies around it, What factors could influence the contagiousness of a virus?
0: Well, there's a handful of factors that affect viral contagiousness in a group of people. First, there's the route of spread, which is one of the most important. There's the respiratory route, direct or indirect contact. There's fecal-oral, which is contaminated food or water. There's blood-borne, sexual transmission, and even viruses spread by bites from insects and animals. Next, there's the survivability of a virus outside the host. There's also the incubation period, the time between infection and symptoms, the severity of the disease disease, while contagious, how many particles are needed for infection, whether or not there's a carrier state, and whether or not that population has prior exposure to the disease. So in this case, we have the novel coronavirus, novel meaning new, versus the opposite, which is endemic, where the disease has already been established
1: and most of the population has had it. That's great. And the idea with uh, the endemic virus is like a typical coronavirus that causes the common cold that, that's around and we're getting exposed to those kind of repeatedly. And this current COVID 19 is, is a real novel virus that the human species has never been exposed to before, right? Yeah, correct. So is contagiousness the
0: same as virulence? Virulence is a little bit different, although the two interact a little bit. Virulence is the severity of the disease, or how sick the pathogen makes the host. The word virus in Latin means poison or venom. So thousands of years ago, they noticed people would become sick or even die for no apparent reason. From an epidemiology standpoint, this does affect the spread of disease. Some diseases that have a very high virulence, may tend to spread less when the hosts are too sick to go out and interact with others. With COVID-19, we have a 50 to 60 percent with little or no symptoms, and only 20 percent have more severe symptoms. So sometimes a less virulent virus can spread more easily. Some uh, So when people are healthy enough to go out, they can go and spread it to others.
1: So if you're a virus and you're trying to design yourself to be Maximally effective, and, and really what a virus wants to do is continue to survive and replicate. You want to be sufficiently contagious and not so virulent that you're killing your host. You actually want your host to survive and be able to go out and, and continue to spread. Is that the basic yeah, idea?
0: Exactly. There's a, there's a kind of a balance between virulence and contagiousness, um, and uh, that's what causes pandemics.
1: Yeah, and this particular virus seems to be balancing that quite well, as you said, with plenty of people being asymptomatic and and spreading it without developing symptoms, and that allows the virus to spread kind of undetected. Absolutely. So, can you tell us what is a mutation, and are mutations of a virus, actually, does that make the virus more dangerous? So, a mutation is any change in genetic material. I like
0: the analogy of uh, reading a book. It can range from a point mutation of a single letter in that book of RNA or DNA. Each letter is called a nucleotide. It's the equivalent of a typo. Other mutations are like deletions or duplications of entire chapters. They don't always affect the organism. These are called silent mutations. Some make minor changes. Some make major changes that cause the organism to die out. Some of the mutations we're looking at are those that allow it to jump from its normal host, and in this case, its bats and or pangolins, to humans, those that affect transmission, and those that affect a target for a vaccine that we're developing. Mutations are not all dangerous. In fact, some viruses can get weaker with mutations. Some postulate this is what happened with the previous SARS outbreak of 2002-2003, where it spread globally and then completely vanished.
1: Yeah, we can cross our fingers that that might happen with this particular one, although that doesn't seem to be the case so far. Can you explain to our audience what the study was related to the mutation of COVID-19 and what they actually found? Sure.
0: Well, let me give you some of it's going to be a little technical, but let me give you some background. A research group in Los Alamos, New Mexico, gathered data from an archive of coronavirus RNA sequences in this is called GISAID, G-I-S-A-I-D, which stands for the Global Initiative for Sharing All Influenza Data. It's an open-source database kept in uh, Germany. They compare the genetic samples taken globally over time and look specifically at a few set of variants of the coronavirus. One specific mutation of interest was the D614G, where a single amino acid changed from D, which stands for aspartate, to G, which stands for glycine, at position 614. That's where the number comes from.
1: Science! 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 science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions.
2: Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing?
1: Yes!
2: Can a roller coaster really kill you?
1: Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Mm. Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind The Strange and Unusual, all to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.
0: This is a position that is found on the spike of the coronavirus. They found that one type, the G-form, became more prevalent over time compared with the others. They concluded that this means it was a mutation that made it more contagious. Headlines in the media outlets, such as the Los Angeles Times, read, a mutant coronavirus has emerged even more contagious than the original but well, there are numerous problems with this conclusion. First, both variants existed where the virus emerged in China. Next, the researchers in Los Alamos never actually tested how contagious either forms were, nor did they look at patient data. Lastly, changes in prevalence that occur over a short period of time are actually expected, especially when the virus is new to a population. This points out one of the many flaws when the media reports on unpublished non-peer-reviewed research. Many in the scientific community have criticized this research, included, Guy said, the organization that curates the data. Now, I'm personally in favor of any scientific inquiry. I think the more we learn, the better prepared we are. I do agree with some of the critics. We need to be more responsible about reaching conclusions without first developing a hypothesis and then testing it. And they didn't test it, which is basic
1: science 101. Right. And and besides that, kind of early release of the data, the media has a tendency to pick up on sometimes a single statement or kind of erroneous erroneously jumps to conclusions about what's being said and that's kind of one of the core reasons that this podcast exists is to try to provide credible information from experts and and really talk through some of these um these issues so I appreciate you breaking that down for us yeah. absolutely. I hope it doesn't get too technical. nope, I think you explained that um mutation really well. How do they track the spread of epidemics and pandemics? Well, now that we have the ability to get the exact genetic sequence of any organism, we can
0: look at even the tiniest of changes. This is the same technology that allows us to trace the migrations of human populations that happened long before recorded history. And it can also act like a genetic fingerprint, allowing us to trace the source of diseases. Viruses, were incredibly difficult to trace. Most can't be seen with a microscope, and culturing them can take weeks. But now we can rapidly look at many samples and compare them over the internet. A good example is in 2015, there was a measles outbreak in Southern California that we were able to trace back to Disneyland and later possibly to the Philippines. This was all by tracing the genetic fingerprint of those who had the disease, and it's a powerful
1: tool for tracking the spread of viruses that hasn't existed until recently. And so are we seeing a new mutant strain? And the second question within that is, are there different strains from Europe and China that, are, that we're seeing? Um, technically, these aren't considered different strains. They're considered clades.
0: A clade is like a branch on a tree. All of the types on a branch share similar traits. I mean, each branch give rise to new branches while still being part of the same tree. Both types, D and G, were present in China and Europe. Anytime a virus moves to a new neighborhood, it, becomes, uh, it can easily become the more dominant form, even if it was rare in the original population. And this is called the founder effect. It doesn't mean it's more contagious or that it evolved or that it's better adapted to that
1: new location. Okay, great. So what Tim, what's the take-home message from this research? I would definitely advise someone who's anxious already to take these doom and gloom
0: headlines that they read on the newspaper and the internet with a grain of salt. One good trick is to look at the actual article citation. In this case, if it brings you to a website, M E D R X-I-V. There are a few things you should know, that that article hasn't been peer-reviewed for accuracy, and it hasn't been published. This doesn't mean it's junk science, but uh, it even has a warning at the very top when you enter the website stating these articles, quote, should not be reported in the news media as established science. Before websites like this existed, if you or I submitted an article for peer review and you went to the mainstream media, you'd be in a lot of trouble. So this is a relatively new phenomenon, and I can already see it creating problems with journalists eager to break a story posting scientifically inaccurate headlines, kind of what you, the main reason for you getting into this podcast is kind of to help people with that.
1: Right. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, that the typical way that scientific research is disseminated is the research is done, and it's done in a very strict methodology And when results are available, those are submitted to a journal where it is then reviewed by a panel of experts, and that's what we call the peer review process. And once that peer review has occurred, if the research is deemed to be um, high quality, it's then published, and it's disseminated at that point and considered to be well-grounded science. And what we're seeing in this COVID-19 era is we have such a need to figure out all the details of the virus and the need to figure out which treatment options might work and and just topic after topic within this field of of COVID-19 that a lot of research, and it's well-intentioned, is being released early so that clinicians and scientists have access to the most recent information about it, but it's not always going through. In fact, in most cases, not going through a peer review process. And so it's not really filtered like typical research would be. And then, as you said, the the media is picking up on it in this early stage and sometimes either jumping to conclusions or or just getting it wrong. and, And that creates anxiety and misinformation and all kinds of other issues. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Absolutely. It's kind of the double-edged sword of the internet these days. Um, it's allowing the scientific community to share data, which is uh, enormously powerful. Uh, we have databases of all the viruses that have been collected so far, um, which, which rapidly accelerates how fast we can make advancements. Um, the flip side of that is that when the media gets a hold of some of the information that's maybe not quite ready for prime time, uh, they run headlines and, and scare a lot of people, which is uh, I, don't, I think is a disservice.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, Tim, this has been really helpful. I appreciate you breaking down this idea of mutations and what the current research is showing, especially with re- uh, regard to COVID-19. So on, on behalf of the podcast and our audience, we really appreciate your time again and, and joining us back. You do a brilliant job of taking complex topics and making them digestible. Thanks,
0: Ted. Keep it up. You're doing a great job with this. Thanks Keep so much, Ted. You're welcome.
2: That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris again. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars longa, vita brevis.